Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about uh, all things media. And our second hour is usually something we want to spend a little more time on. And today, we're going to have more discussion <laughs> about general media. So we have questions. Saturdays, uh, this is kind of the old school Saturdays. We'll go until you stop asking questions, and then uh, and then we'll go about our Saturday. So, um, so throw those questions into McConnell right now, and let's go ahead and jump into the questions. Dave, what do we have? We start with Alexander Knight from Port Coquitlam, B.C. I have a setup, Stream Deck, XL, and Companion, and I'm wondering if there's a setting or plugin that puts the LCD screens to sleep after a period of time. Worried about longevity of the device running 24-7. Good, Samuel. Yeah, well, I wouldn't be too worried about the uh, about the Stream Deck, uh, but uh, in uh, Companion, you can actually turn down the brightness. Uh, so if you uh, see here, you can turn it to zero brightness, and then it will be black, just as if it was off. And then you can uh, set up, uh, I often use 50% uh, brightness, so you can just switch between, toggle between the two brightnesses. Good, Mitchell. Samuel, that's an excellent answer. I was just wondering, can you have one on long enough to have burnout? I don't think I've ever seen a stream deck where it's like dimmed out beyond my normal level, but I like your solution. Good, Paul. Yeah, I, what Samuel said, I was going to say that thing about the companion. I've got two stream decks here. They're the little ones, you know, the five by threes, and uh, they've been on for like three months without turning off, and there's no degradation or anything. I just wish I had your enthusiasm for the uh, stream deck, Alexander. Next question. Coming from David Brady in New York City, New York. Similar to Global Cache, I've been using MIDI Solutions F8 to send contact closure commands via MIDI. What are some other creative uses of MIDI to contact closure? You know, one of the things that I've... Um uh, X-Keys has a lot of different options for that. So uh, with X-Keys, you have lots of, you can attach buttons. There's a little hub that you that you can get that, you know, kind of, you know, it's kind of a hub, uh, a hub with a bunch of little eighth-inch inputs. And then out of that, you can have all kinds of contact closures because those eighth-inch are just, are just reporting back to that and back to a USB connection that goes back to X-Keys. And I've put these on buttons all over my desk at one time where if I want to go to this, I just tap on it. So instead of having a switcher, I had a switcher in the background, but I didn't have, this is before the, the extremes, I didn't have a panel for it. So I just had it next to the screens and I would just tap on the screen and I would just be able, it would just cut to that screen. So I would just be able to tap, tap. I'm on a talkie or tap. One of the things that I really like to do is, is have things as a speaker, have things as organic as possible, you know, and so that I can just have little things that I just tap on what I want to, what I want to look at. Um, and that way I don't have to go back, oh, what input is this? This is five or six. I just tap on the thing that is the most interesting to me. So, so I think that, um, uh, that's one way that I've used these contact closures. Um, and we've also used, uh, you know, a variety of this type of thing. Now, sometimes it's not always MIDI, uh, but it can be doing things with Arduinos and so on and so forth to do very specific things where we hand off buttons that we've built um, that have those. Um, and um, what it allows people to do is, is um, uh, we can build custom interfaces where they can they can touch things and, and have them do what they need them to do. So there's a lot there. There's something about making it organic and right in front of you that's uh, um, it's pretty fun. I think the, probably the most, uh, well, anyway, <laughs> we've, we've done some ones. You can do ones where if you, you we've built sensors where if, if something is given a high pressure air, 
it'll push a filament up against the contact closure. So um, this would be, you know, like a high uh, high volume of air, like if it was exiting the ex the end the a gun. <laughs> like so, there's a huge force that comes out of the end of the gun, and what it'll do is it'll close that contact closure, which will fire a camera. And if you get it just right, you can catch a bullet in flight. <laughs> so, so if you 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 can um, put it there because you have to get the all the distances and timing right to do that. Um, but there's a pressure on the gun, and the and the and the bullet is not moving at the speed of light. So you can you can you just have to time it right, and you can get one actually in in flight. But it's using the air pressure against the contact closure. That's probably the most interesting one that I've worked on, and that was a long time ago, thirty years ago. <laughs> Next question. This one's from Mitchell Hill in Wilmington, Delaware, looking for the fastest CF Express Type B device for transferring files from a Sony FX9. Go ahead, Mitchell. Uh, we uh, we created piles of files in the piles of files, uh, and the DIT had to transfer them on location. And I figured, well, I'll just buy whatever I can find, and I found this uh, Sony um, device for doing uh, transfers, but it's extraordinarily slow. I'm just wondering if there's better ones out there. Good, Courtney. I found this to be uh, uh, really tough because it depends on your USB bus that you connect them to. And, oops, sorry, (laughs) I disappeared. There's, um, although we never trust SanDisk anymore because of their speed slowdown, Uh, there's this UHS-2 USB-C card reader that is about 20 bucks on Amazon to USB-C, uh, and I th- believe it'll deal with uh, CFast. Is it CFast cards or just Compact Flash that you're reading? It's a CFast, the Type C-fast, B, the yeah. more recent uh, vintage. Yeah, so that should read it. It's gotten some pretty good ratings, so you could try that one. 20 bucks, but sometimes it depends on, you know, how they handshake with the USB bus and, and what speed that the USB bus that you plug it into is capable of, so... Yeah, there's some, um, you know, OWC also makes one that I think might be, might turn out to be a little bit faster because OWC probably pays a little more attention to that, that need. Um, so take, take a look at the OWC reader as well. Um, there's, there are some that are, uh, I know that one thing you may want to look for is like a 10 gigabit per second USB-C C, CF Express reader. So look for that speed against that as well. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, does somebody make one that also does uh, like uh, S by S to S by X cards? Well, the S by X, I think, are mostly Sony's. I don't think you, I would do that. But you can get multi-readers that have um, the the CF Express. And, and I, right. I think that overall, uh, the, the Sony's um, proprietary... Sony's proprietary memory cards is why I stopped using Sony for a long time. I mean, we're using them now. I have, I'm on a Sony camera today. But that, you know, with the EX1s and the EX3s and, you know, a lot of the cameras and all the custom stuff that they built, it just really backed us into a corner. And the cost of memory was really high and the transfer options were really low and, and it just was really a bad experience. And so it's, it's, it's one of the... One of a few reasons that for... I mean, I had probably at one point 20 or 30 Sony cameras and within about four years I had none. Or one, you know, like it was just I just slowly got rid of them all, um, just because I was so frustrated with uh, with the memory memory options. So and the me- and the menus. <laughs> so so anyway, so um, anyway, so the uh, and Black Magic came out. We started buying a lot of those, and so so you know the autofocus is great on Sony. I think that there's a lot of comfort issues that they don't handle very well. Go ahead, Alex. 
ProGrade seems to, I was just looking at the reviews because I was researching this too. ProGrade has an $80 one that'll do uh, 10 gigabits per second. So it's USB 3.2 Gen 2 and it's a dual slot uh, reader. So it does the CF uh, Express and it also does the UHS uh, 2 SD cards and it's $80 US on Amazon right now. Next question. Next one comes from Paul Wallhouse in Austin, Texas. Chrome OS Flex can run on and rejuvenate old PCs and Macs. Any thoughts on this? And he has a link to Chrome Enterprise at Google. Go to Paul real quick. Yeah, real quick. Uh, I'm looking forward to trying it. It uh, takes your old Macs, your old PCs. You put it on a USB stick, install it, and you've got a brand new PC or Mac that... Uh, I've got so many works just as decades as old, <laughs> decades old uh, computers. I'm going to try it, you can Alex. I'll PC, give it a try and report you, back to you. You okay. can make your PC and Mac work just like I, you know. <laughs> I, I I have two kids in school right now that have Chromebooks, and they are just oh, the worst computers. All right, next question. Next one's from Daniel Ferguson in Thousand Oaks, California. Looking for recommendations for Wi-Fi remote control outlet switches compatible with Apple HomeKit. What are you using? I don't know how many of us are using the switches. Um, I think that uh, I have ones that talk directly to the bulbs. I have, um, you know, I'm talking to the outlets. Um, I, I haven't really, I have to admit when it comes to, I, I'm with you in the sense that I am very focused on trying to get HomeKit to work. Um, but I've kind of, I, I admit that I've kind of given up um, right now. And so I, I'm just waiting for Apple to give up. <laughs> I'm just holding out to, that Apple will just give up and build five, the five things. I think, that, I don't know if I'll remember all five of them, but the five that I want Apple to build is just, I just want them to build an outlet, a thermostat, a, a light switch, um, a um, camera, and a door lock. And that's, you know, if Apple just built that, they would just destroy the market because Apple users would just stop buying everything else. And we're a pretty big part of the automation market. <laughs> so, 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 so the, um, and, and then, and then Apple could start negotiating with everybody after they've taken all the air out of the, out of the system. Um, so anyway, so we'll see, we'll see what happens. It's, it's just a really, it's a big mess right now. Next question. From Andre Dole in Berlin. Which kind of line isolator are people using to get hum-free connections to the ATEM Mini's line-in socket? Uh, go ahead, Alex. The one that I've been using for the last year and I've had zero problems is the ART CleanBox Pro. I use a uh, balanced, uh, a high-quality balanced XLR audio stereo output from my my board that goes into that and then a, a really really short unbalanced high quality cable that comes out of that into eight into the ATAM. if you got a uh, deeper pockets i have to recommend my canadian friends at radial uh, they have the j-iso stereo di box and it also has a trim pot on it as well the art does as well so they both do the job and uh, shouldn't have any issues with that go ahead mitchell yeah alexander's exactly right uh there's two routes you can go with this you can go passive using a transformer or an active device, just like the uh, the art and the radial that uh, Alexander mentioned. I personally like the Henry Matchbox. Uh, it's bi-directional, and it has all those little tweakers on it so you can get the uh, the adjustments right. And that's exactly what I'm using on my A10 Mini Extreme. I'm still at a um, a quandary, a uh, whatever, trying to figure out why ATEM continues to have a unbalanced line out and line in on their devices. It doesn't make sense. Good, Paul. 
I agree with Mitchell. I go to Alex. The other option to look at, which is an even better solution and something I'm working towards, is check with your camera manufacturer and see if they make a digital hot shoe adapter that will allow you to get balanced audio in it. Because then if you do that, you've got another advantage. You've got the audio coming in at the same time as the camera video over HDMI into the ATEM. So that's an even better solution. Yeah, the only time that that doesn't work as well is if you want to delay the audio because the ATEM will only delay the analog inputs. Um, but if you don't need that because you're putting in the camera and everything's in sync, then you, then you should be fine. But there, is, there are a couple controls that you lose when you come through the camera to make that actually happen. I do think that it's a, it's a really painful. When they came out with the Extreme and, and a lot of these other things, I really felt like they could have just gone to a TA3 and just given us two TA3s would have been a much more professional solution for this. Uh, next question. The next one comes from David Brady in New York City, New York. What is the purpose of locations in OS X? These settings don't prompt a power-up. If I recall, OS 9 had this functionality with the return to office. It would be handy for a location manager to set defaults for locations like printers, displays, and networks. Thoughts? You know, I... I have not. Uh, th th yeah, so used to be, or or you can use locations to do exactly what David's talking about, which is I have a, a configuration for lots of things that can be all saved to a location. So I'm now at home. These are my IP config. This is my internet configurations. This is my printer configurations. These are, you know, there's all these things that can be set there. I will admit that I stopped using locations a long time ago and just kind of show up and it reacts to most of what it needs to do fairly effectively. I feel like it's a little bit the thing of the past. It took me a little while to remember that I ever even used it, but I used to have a list of them and it might be turning my VPN on. It might be doing other things. So I used to have a list of these. I think I just used them so infrequently and then found out I was in the wrong one and it was doing the wrong thing that I, I kind of just went back to just letting it do, letting it just kind of float between everything and turning the things on that I needed to as I needed it. Um, I didn't find that it saved me much time. Um, next question. Mitchell Hill from Wilmington, Delaware. What Thunderbolt dock provides the most input-output options for your Mac? I go, Dave. Oop, can't hear you, Dave. Dave, can't hear you. There we go. I use an Anchor 577, and I use that as a Thunderbolt station. It's a hub, not a dock, and it's powering 13 connections, and uh, three of them are um, Thunderbolts. I found that to be my clean-up-my-desk kind of option, but also it powers my Mac and an iPad and uh, a monitor all at the same time. So I'm finding it doesn't overheat, and it's running quite smoothly. Go ahead, Alexander. You know, I'm still shopping for one. The only one, one of my requirements was having at least three Thunderbolt ports. And the only one that I found in the OWC lineup is the 11 port Thunderbolt dock. It also has lots of uh, regular USB type A ports and it also has Ethernet. So that's the one that I'm looking at. Hey, good Paul. Yeah, I've got the Satechi. Uh, <clears throat> I hope you say it that way. Don't recommend it. The, the audio output doesn't work and I've had problems with it. If I did it again, I'd get the OWC. Go ahead, Mitchell. Um, Alexander, I do have that Thunderbolt dock from OWC. That's what it's called, Thunderbolt dock. And my problem with it is it has a front connecting computer uh, USB connector uh, that seems to take a little bit of abuse and gets really flaky. 
but uh, I'm looking to step up from that to something else. And then meanwhile, what is the difference between a dock and a hub when it comes to doing this? I think uh, I tend to think of a hub as something that's unpowered, um, you know, a dock that is powered, but it's usually a certain size of things. And I don't know exactly how they define those things. Uh, I have the 14 port OWC, which has worked really well for me. Um, so it's got, uh, uh, it's got a couple displays for uh, uh, two HDMI displays. It has only two Thunderbolts. Um, so that's, that is not what you were looking for necessarily. Five USB um, uh, 3.2 Type A's and uh, one USB Type C. So it's, it's pretty, pretty good for about, and it's on sale right now for I think 200 bucks. Next question. From Jack Rupel in Breckenridge, Colorado. Please discuss Zoom H3 VR first order ambisonic mic recorder. Cheapest entry to ambisonics? Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Well, perhaps. It's a combo recorder and microphones. And the problem with this is you know, it's got four microphones and the recorder is built in this strange conical base. Uh, the problem with this is, I, I think, is A, you have to operate it. And maybe there's a Bluetooth app, but uh, if you put it up on a stick up high, you know, your recorder is up high with the... With the microphone, and the other problem is wind protection. It comes with a uh, little foam windscreen, but I think that is uh, inadequate if you're outdoors in anything over about three mile an hour wind. And uh, there's, it wouldn't fit inside any of the Rycote basket windscreens. If it did, you, you'd lose control of the recorder itself. So combining the two, probably not a good idea. It does have a quarter and quarter 20 thread on the bottom of it, so you can stick it on a pole uh, and mount it up high. And hopefully it has a Bluetooth uh, app that goes with it that lets you control it and remotely start and stop it. Otherwise, it's, it's kind of difficult to deal with where the recorder is right underneath the microphone. Yeah, the the um, uh, I I wouldn't find it too hard to just hit record and then move it to where I need it to go, as long as you have some way to sync it up. There is a Zoom WSU dash one, which is a um a little little I don't know if it's a really called a dead cat, but a furry that you can put over top of it that might be a little bit better outside. I, it is important. These mics are really sensitive to wind, so um so these just because they're all at different angles, and so you're you're pretty guaranteed if there's any wind that you're going to hear it. So uh, um, so I think that you want to get something that's going to be fairly good. The foam is not going to be enough for outside. Um, I, you know, the, typically the Zoom will have a little bit more self-noise than most of the higher-end mics, the Ambio or the Octo. Um, and so those are going to, you know, you, you may want, you may have to do a little bit of filtering on them to make that, you know, work better over time. But I will say that, as I keep on playing with Ambisonic, I get more and more excited about it. Um, you know, I think that there's something very environmental about it that is just really, really cool. So um, I would, um, it's a great first step in this. I think it's like $300. And so the next step up gets, starts to get pretty expensive or $250. Uh, the next step up starts to get pretty expensive. Um, uh, you know, the Ambio is probably the next one, which is about $1,300. And that's just for the mic. Um, the, uh, the blimp and the sock that I put on the mic is another $1,300, I think. So it's, um, so it turns out to be about a $2,500 solution. I have, I'm testing an Octo, um, which is a second order ambisonic, but I need to get a blimp for it too. <laughs> like I took it out and did a little bit of listening to it and I was like, oh, that's not going to work. So, um, so anyway, so I, so I think that, um, but I think that if you, if you want to get a sense of what it's like, I think that you this would be a great place to start. And we're going to talk a lot more about Ambisonic and Surround as we go into the fall. So it's a good time to buy one and test one too. Next question. 
From Daniel Ferguson in Thousand Oaks, California, is there a single iPhone app to help keep track of media I'm watching across all the video streaming services? My wife and I are tired of using Post-its, and I want to avoid building a spreadsheet or using FileMaker. All right, go ahead. Mitchell? Uh, Daniel, you can put those Post-it notes away. Um, I'm going to try to convince you to put those apps on your Apple TV. It's just a, if, you, if, if you're going to look for video streaming, you're probably going to watch it on your TV. If that's the case, uh, the Apple TV is a great way to do it. I consider it a gateway for all of those plus services that I have that I have to keep track of. Uh, go ahead, Alex. Yeah, that's a good point. There is actually an app I've been trying on my phone. Uh, it's If you search the App Store for Q, it's a really nicely designed app, and it allows you to add uh, any TV show or movie to a list that you want to watch. You can also share those lists with your friends, and you can see in real time as they add stuff to it as well. And then it also gives you, they have these very nicely designed pages that show you, it just aggregates all the reviews and ratings and gives you information about the movies and the actors in it. So I would have a look at Q. I go ahead, Paul. Now there's a, an incredible app. It's... Uh, called uh, Real Good, R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D, and it's amazing. And it's cross-platform. It runs on everything, and it's on the iPhone. And uh, you can track everything you watch. It'll, it's, it covers all the services. It's amazing, amazing app. I'm finding reducing the number of services that I have to be the easiest way to keep track of it all. So we're, we're slowly turning them off. I think that Disney and Max are probably the next two that we're going to probably turn off. We're just looking at how much time we spend on any one of those. And those are probably the next ones we had exper experimented. Uh, NBC and Paramount were the first ones to go. And, uh, and um, so we're just trying to get down to something more normal. I think we're going to stick with... Uh, Amazon uh, Prime, because I can Prime, you, you don't think about turning Prime off, and then Apple, because it's Apple, and then Netflix, and I think those are going to be the three that win for us. Uh, Alex, uh, just so you know, uh, Paramount just uh, announced they're going to pick up Showtime, so if you have Paramount Plus, you get Showtime, so you can watch care. Billions. Yeah, I don't watch Showtime either, so it's, it's okay. <laughs> Next question. From Jack Rupel in Breckenridge, Colorado, impulse responses are used for cabinet modeling, amp modeling, and tone modeling. Can you discuss how impulse responses might be applied to immersive audio? 32-bit float IRs? Go Mitchell. I use uh, impulses to uh, drive my convolution reverb. And basically, you go into a room and you uh, record these impulses and then you uh, patch it into the reverb program and it reproduces the room pretty accurately. So for audio uh, impulses and a good collection of them would be great. Go to Carnegie Hall, make some impulses and run home. Yeah, there's some companies that have already done impulses in a lot of places that you can, you, that will, I can't think of the name of the company right now, but I'm sure that Mickey will put it into the, into the chat here if I just talk long enough. Um, but uh, there is a, um, there's a company that does a lot of, they've already kind of gone through a lot of these locations and, um, and um, put it together there. And it's, it is, you definitely can get it in there and these can be sweeps or impulses. And so that you can make one loud explode, you know, one loud thing. Some people pop balloons, some people do other things things like that. And then you can also do sweeps where you're going from the lowest to the highest. And I think that the one we've used in the most recently are sweeps. Uh, Altiverb, yes. See, see, if I talked long enough, I knew Mickey would just put it in. Altiverb is the one that has done a lot of uh, a lot of these modeling for a lot of different locations that you can use um, automatically. Uh, next question. Uh, next question. 
You're muted, Dave. Douglas Carmichael is asking, would there be a benefit to using a line oscillator to connect unbalanced sources like keyboards to a console versus a DI box? Uh, go ahead, Alex. Well, you can get these little line isolator boxes that have unbalanced inputs, unbalanced outputs. I don't bother using those. I always, always use a DI box with a transformer isolated output. So anytime I'm connecting, doesn't matter if it's a keyboard or a little DJ deck, anything that has unbalanced audio, if I care about it in a recording environment, in a live sound environment, always put a DI box and uh, just a short as short as possible unbalanced cable uh, and then balanced on the other side. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, most of these uh, DI boxes that you talk about that go from unbalanced to balanced are isolators because they're transformer, if they're transformer-based passive. Uh, and this one that you pointed to is a uh, is is one of those. It has, um, you know, some tip ring to XLR input, so I assume there's a line balancing transformers in there. It doesn't seem to take batteries, so I believe it is passive. So uh, it, it does your isolation for you, so you wouldn't need a separate isolator if you're using a direct box like this. Next question. David Brady from New York City is asking, would anyone be willing and able to print me up 10 of these ATEM FTB guards? I gladly reimburse you to time, materials, and shipping. He's got a link to thingiverse.com. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, that's uh, what he's talking about is a guard for us ATEM many users that covers the fade to black button so that you don't hit it accidentally. And I looked at it, and uh, I'll try and download it and run a few off for you, David. Hit me up on the Discord. It'll be a good test of uh, whether I've got my uh, K1 printer tuned up right now. Go ahead, Samuel. Yeah, well, I think it's better that Courtney does it because we also have to send them away from Norway, and there will be a lot of shipping and stuff. But I've I've been my printer's been going twenty four seven the last days. I've been printing uh, a camera, a PTT uh, camera. I had nice. Oh, you're 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 printing the PTZ camera. That's cool. Yeah, is the, that the one, the one that we I put about? in yesterday. Yeah. Oh, we want uh, a report. So when you have that, yeah. when you have that up, let us know how it works. Yeah, it's been going 24-7 now, and I've ordered the part, so I just have to get it and put it together. Okay, well, as soon as you have it together, let us know. Put a question in and be here on the panel and show us show us how the camera works. We're very I curious will. about how that works. Um, the uh, I've actually printed these. I think this was a request that happened before um, that, that came up in the past. And I've printed this exact model, and here's the problem with it, is it's got a little swing door on it. And that door has these little nubs that that uh, um, that will go into a little eyelets. You know, it's really very delicate. There you go. I printed. There's a couple different versions. I printed all of them, and all of them have the same problem. Those little those little nubs break off. You know, or the eyelets break off. It's not. It's it's too fine. Uh, it's for what I found was it was too fine for the PLA. So maybe we can find a better, um, you know, something or other to make that work. Maybe resin would work better. Maybe something else would work better. But I can tell you that they were complete fails for me. And I just didn't get back around to redesigning them. I was going to just make them one solid piece that you just set there and you pick it up if you want to use it because most people don't use fade to black. And it, a lot of us would love for fade to black to be separated more from auto and cut. And this is why we all want a, something to cover it. Um, but I, I found that it was it was difficult to um, to make that work. The, the, the hinge um, piece of it is very delicate, and it didn't take very many up, open and closes for it to break. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Mitchell. 
I put the fade to black. I'd move it to the sting button up in the upper deck there. Yeah, I, I, it just needs to move somewhere else. Like it just need, the fade to black needed not be next to cut and auto. Um, next question. Next one comes from Jack Rupel in Breckenridge, Colorado. He's asking about audio mixing for stereoscopic video to enhance immersive experience. Yeah, I mean, I think that, I, well, that's a, uh, yeah, the, I think that the, the, the Ambisonic or 5.1, I mean, really 5.1 is a really great solution because it now is supported live via YouTube. So I, I think that there's a really interesting opportunity there to, to take advantage of it. Um, and I think that the Ambisonic capture that then goes to, that then is mixed to 5.1 um, is a great solution as far as, you know, being able to transport it, or capture it and transport it in a relatively compact form and then open it back up. There is some arguments that you moving the mics around a little bit, um, uh, moving the mics a little bit further away from the center, you may not be accurate, but may give you more of a stereo feel. Go ahead, Courtney. Another possibility is just get you a binaural recording head, which is a, a head with two microphones in ear-shaped ear -shaped, uh, things that are on either side of it. So you can record just in a, with a stereo recorder without having to deal with ambisonics. And then the uh, position of things, if you mount that underneath your stereoscopic camera that's capturing, that you will have the same field of reference as your camera does uh, so that everything will line up. Yeah, I did. I did talk to the. I talked to the director of Thirty Two Sounds um, after the. They did a screening here, and he was here, and so I was talking to him about that because they show the Neumann uh, head, which is like ten thousand dollars for that for that head, and he said, "I said, so have, were you sold on doing it all in binaural?" And he said, "No, we're really glad we captured a lot of it in ambisonic because because he said the ambisonic, of course, builds a field, and so we were able to do more editing and figure out what we we're doing. The the binaural." paint you into a corner and and it's going to be the way that it was shot and the way that it looks so i mean i think that there are i mean especially if you're putting it on top of a 16 by 9 camera that could make sense because you're now able to um you know you're seeing what the camera seen so, theoretically but um but but again he he said they they recorded a lot of it in both um uh, both ambisonic as well as as in uh in binaural and they used a little bit of both um and i am very interested in uh sennheiser makes uh, a set of microphones that you can just put on your own head. <laughs> so you just put them all over your own head, and they use your head um, to uh, to do the to do the um, binaural, which I think is kind of interesting. You just have to breathe really, really quietly. Uh, next question. This one is from Adrian Watkins in Wellington, New Zealand, asking. He's struggling to get audio sync in Zoom from the Mix Pre into the ATEM. Is it better to set audio delay in the Mix Pre or ATEM? Uh, go ahead, Alex. Well, I mean, you can uh, accomplish the same thing by delaying things, whether you delay it one area or the other. However, the one thing that I would suggest, I don't know what you've done really to try to determine how many milliseconds you need to delay it. I wouldn't necessarily try to arbitrarily find the number. If you want to do it more precisely, what I usually do is I will just record myself with a clapperboard and I, I will uh, then play it back and then in in my editor, I will basically look at where the clapperboard meets and then the where the audio is, and then I'll count the frames, and then I'll just figure that out and then punch in whatever, the, in milliseconds, however many I need to put in there to get it more precise. Yeah, you'll find, I think you'll find that you have more control on the, on the Mix Pre um, than, than you do on the ATEM. And probably, I think, more sync op opportunity, you know, like you can take it a lot further and you have more granular control. 
Uh, quick reminder that, of course, you can ask questions uh, throughout the first hour. Uh, this is a Saturday, and it's a really, Saturdays are really, really relaxed. We just go until you finish asking questions. <laughs> it's, it's a weekend. So, uh, so go ahead and throw those questions in right now, um, and uh, we'll keep on going. Next question. From Daniel Ferguson in Thousand Oaks, California, asking what iPad, keyboard, or case do you use or recommend? I'm looking to avoid lugging a laptop overseas. Go ahead, Paul. Yeah, I use this case here that I got on Amazon. It, it, it's a no-name case. I wish I had, was better prepared. Wait, wait. it says uh, Una, Unicorn. It's a unicorn case. There you go. I'm, I was I was looking to see if I could I have the newer one, but I will say that the the ones that come with the Apple the Apple ones are the in my opinion the best. I mean this is this is the older one that that is there, but the new one is like really for the Pro anyway for the iPad Pro the new one is it's really nice. <laughs> it just it just opens up. It's stiff. It holds every you know it just pops things up and it really makes you feel like you're working in a laptop. Um, so I I I was I've been really happy with it. Go ahead, John. I have the Logitech for my iPad Pro. I'm not happy with it. It's cl really clunky. Yeah, I've tried. I have tried so many. Like I've tried. I, you know, so I I have different iPad cases. I have one big one that I have that has a handle on the back of it, but it's really designed so that we can hold it while we're going live. Not really designed for like I want to work on it. As something that says I want to work on it, the Apple one has been the best one. I can type really well. The keyboard works really well. It's stiff. It holds it up like a screen. So if you're using it as a work item, I would do it that way. There's lots of other customization that you can do where you have, again, you, you're putting your hand into the sleeve so you can hold it while you're talking. You can you have ones that might cover it. The one thing I wish it did is it had a better way to hold the pen because the pen just kind of is a magnet on the end and you kind of wish you had a sheath for it because otherwise it pops off. Next question. Next one is from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Amazon launches Amazon Luna on LG Smart TVs, released between 2021 and 2023 and running WebOS 6 Plus, after debuting Luna on Samsung Smart TVs in August of 2022. Just what is Luna? Uh, I think it failed, didn't it? Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, maybe it did. Uh, Luna, it still it looks like it's still available. Luna Plus is a subscription-based gaming platform so yeah. that the uh, games are hosted in the cloud on Amazon servers, and you just stream the GDI down to your TV set, and you pay a monthly subscription fee for a large number of games from a large number of different uh, game suppliers, game manufacturers. So uh, it's gaming in the cloud uh, for and subscription. Done. And it's done. And it's hosted as a app on your TV itself without a streaming device connected to it. And I think it's done about as well as Stadia. Uh, go ahead, Paul. Yeah, cross it off my list. They eliminated Pong last month. So oh, well, there you go. It's a no-go. So, no go. Yeah, the uh, you know I didn't mean, have enough bandwidth for Pong. I think. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I I just still I will keep on repeating that plugging your TV into the internet is nuts. You should never do that. Uh, I know that they really want you to, and they they put a lot of things on it. It's a horrible idea. Just put up something in between it, and don't don't let them talk. Don't let your TV talk to the internet. Next question. From Kenny Hampton in Greenville, Illinois, referencing the earlier DI box discussion, active versus passive DI boxes preferences. What about audio quality comparisons? Go ahead, Mitchell. 
Yeah, Kenny, when it comes to audio quality, um, when you have a passive device, which generally is just a transformer, um, and the active, which has got some type of preamp or amplifier in it, uh, the one with the preamp or the active circuitry is going to add some noise. So quality-wise, it's a slight combination of uh, that plus uh, whatever the self-noise is of the uh, uh, amplification in that particular box. My preference on quality is a passive box using a Jensen transformer. They're the top-notch audio quality um, uh, transformers out there. And if you're looking for a source, uh, try Whirlwind. They're a pretty good place to check out. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, ditto on the Jensen transformers with the passives. Yeah, if you do have an active, the other problem to deal with is they take batteries. And just when you want to use it, you'll always find the battery is dead. So, and they they don't, the batteries don't last that long if you're pumping a lot of sound through them. So uh, keep that in mind unless you can externally power it now through a USB plug or something. Uh, batteries is something you have to deal with with an active. Go ahead, Alex. There are DI boxes that have nine that take nine volt batteries, but they can alternatively be powered over forty eight volts phantom power, which you can. I mean, any mixer now has that. Uh, yeah, and there certainly are quality differences. The Jensen transformers are good. Uh, if you have deeper park pockets, some of the best ones that I've tested have Lundahl transformers, and those can get quite expensive. Usually five hundred dollars plus for that. Uh, there's a company actually uh, based out of, here, out of Vancouver here. They hand built these DI boxes uh, on the. Uh, it's Cable Factory, I believe, .com, and they have sourced some really, really nice Lundell transformers. They're handmade, and I think they're about $400 or $500 Canadian. So there are better options out there for sound quality if you, if you have deeper pockets. And uh, Mickey says that R&D makes great sounding DIs. Uh, next question. From Paul Walhouse in Austin, Texas, can you embed a live Zoom meeting on a website? You can view it. I mean, obviously, you can join the Zoom call from a web page. And so that, that's one way to handle it. If you want to actually embed it, like we, we embed our, our show onto, uh, into that, you really need to stream it somewhere. So you need to do a stream out to somewhere to make that available, and then you have a player for it. So we use YouTube. So we're embedding this Zoom meeting or the output of this Zoom meeting into, uh, we're streaming that to YouTube, and then YouTube is being embedded into the page. And so... There's a little bit of a delay. There's about a 20 second delay. We could shorten it um, if we wanted to, but we want to, um, uh, and we may, we may shorten it to 10 seconds. The 10 seconds doesn't seem to affect the quality. When you go down to two seconds, uh, which you can do in YouTube, that's the ultra low latency. It does lower the resolution of the entire show. So, um, so you, you know, and, and what's interesting is the record will be the full resolution, but it lowers the actual resolution that it goes out at to ensure that people are getting a seamless experience, even though it's a lower resolution. So, so the, um, so, but going through some service, you'd have to stream it to a service to truly embed it into a web page the way you would think of. Next question. Daniel Ferguson from Thousand Oaks, California, asking, I have a few Nest cams and I'm looking to replace them with another 24-7 recording solution. Ring doesn't do that. Any recommendations on cloud-based home video security solutions that I can monitor from my phone? Go ahead, Courtney. I just got a Wise uh, door, doorbell cam, and it seems to work quite well. Now, as far as recording, they also make a bunch of outdoors uh, groups that, that can be put. There's a three-camera uh, wire-free 
uh, Wi-Fi setup, uh, 1080p cameras, and they're all motion-based, uh, so they detect motion and then they record. I don't know if you want to record 24/7. They're on 24/7 and they record anytime they see motion, but and you can set up the uh, you can control how much motion triggers them uh, from a you know a fly flying by to uh, you know people moving within a certain area of the frame because uh, it's kind of pointless to record 24/7 since it has a built-in clock in it and whenever it clicks on the record it creates a new file that is time date stamped so you know you can go directly to any of the times and, it, and it's got a nice little uh, app that runs on ios and uh, android and i think there's also a windows and a mac os uh, version of it so that you can monitor on your pc or your phone and you just click on the time it'll show you all the videos lined up in uh, in chronological order uh, of anything that set off the detector and you can go instantly to that and it'll it'll play them back for you uh, in small increments without having to wait through 24 hours of video to find something when something moved you know or when something was happening good paul yeah wise has got an incredible range of cameras they just came out with a battery camera that uh is independent. The, the earlier ones, you had to have it hooked up to a solar panel or to AC power. Now it's independent. And they do have a web app that's pretty good. You can uh, go to a website and uh, it runs on everything. It runs on Mac, iOS, uh, Android and everything. And uh, you beware of their subscriptions. Though. They, can, they can get you to spend a lot of money on their add-ons so you got to be careful to monitor the add-ons that they constantly suggest you get go ahead, john so so wise are super affordable all the all the founders of wise all came from amazon so their their supply chain is super super uh affordable in the middle i would say the ubiquity solution which records on a local drive in the ubiquity router which is a great solution keep all your footage there locally and then on the high end, I would I would say um, it is access, which is really high end stuff. Next question. Paul Wallace is asking: Discuss Cameo's integration with Chrome OS, which now allows Windows and Mac OS applications to coexist on Chromebooks. And an article from The Verge. Good, Samuel. Well, this is like a, a web service that runs the apps in the in the cloud, and then it uh, sends it to the uh, to the Chromebook. Uh, so it's not it's not really something I would use unless I really had to, because it's not. I don't think it's uh, the best solution. I th you should get a Windows uh, laptop or a, a Mac. Yeah, I agree. Good, Paul. Yeah, when I posted this, I thought it was uh, kind of something we could all use, but it's they've really position this for the enterprise and they're trying to sell corporate licenses. But what it does is it takes, uh, it puts a menu bar on the bottom of your uh, Chromebook and then you can open an app yeah. uh, from Windows or Mac OS on it. And it's yeah. not running like a, a virtual machine. It's, it's uh, they call it a DAR or something like that. I forget yeah. the acronym, but uh for an, for an enterprise, it looks promising. Go ahead, Courtney. 
Yeah, the main problem is it doesn't run all Windows apps uh, for me. It, it only runs progressive web apps, so they have to be compiled to be progressive web apps to run them on this. So uh, if you've got some custom software that you've written for your corporation and you want to be able to run it on a Chromebook that was written 10 years ago, it's not going to run. Uh, so bear that in mind. Only progressive web apps uh, can run on it. It's bad enough to give your employees or your students Chromebooks. It's worse to make them run run emulation Mac or PCs. It's just just it's just all of it's horrible. Next question. Gordon Lake is uh, Los Angeles, California. What are some of the reasons that you would decline a project? Go ahead, Mitchell. Well, I think one of my main jobs as a uh, producer is to manage expectations of the client. And we somehow have the ability as a producer to look into a little bit of a crystal ball and see where the shortcomings are either by budget or the client expectations or other things that come into it. And if I see a big roadblock down the road and I have a client that just won't discuss those things, I have to decline the job because I know I'm not going to meet those expectations when it's all said and done. So... Um, I regret that, that those things happen, but um, sometimes we have to say goodbye to a, what looks like a good job. Go ahead, Courtney. If they're shooting at the beach, I turn it down. <laughs> <laughs> sand, sand and moving heavy equipment around are not compatible. So. Yeah, oh, no, it's at we, the beach for three days. Oh, let me check my calendar. Oh, sure I'm can, sorry, I'm Just booked. make sure we're using all rental equipment, which is why you should never rent equipment. Uh, go ahead, Alex. Yeah, there's two simple questions I always ask myself. Do I have time for it? Can I do it? Because <laughs> if I can't do it, there's no point and I don't want to let people down. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I do is I, I very rarely say no. I often just put on the requirements to do it. Like, so I, I, I've, it's very rare for me to, to turn down a client. Uh, I have, but for the most part, I, um, for the most part, I, I, I have... Like, I can do your job, but we need this much time, we need this much money, we need this much, we need these things to make it, or we can't do it. So I leave it, I usually leave it to the client to make a decision about, uh, like, can they give me the requirements? And I'm just looking at what it takes to do the job, exactly what Alex was just talking about. And so I just set that up. Now, there are certain clients that I've turned down because they were very difficult in the past, or they or they were... Uh, uh, they didn't pay in time, <laughs> you know, they, they, you know, and, or, you know, those kinds of things that, but even then I don't usually say, no, I'm not going to work for you. I usually just am busy because <laughs> I usually am. <laughs> so, you know, every job has to push into a gel of that. I'm full of things that I'm working on. And so I, if I just have to make a decision about whether I'm moving that gel around for a project or not. So usually I'm always busy and it's just a matter of whether I'm making that a priority. So sometimes I just come back and say, well, I'm sorry, we don't have the time to do those right now. We have conflicts. Um, next question. From Daniel Ferguson in Thousand Oaks, California. I have an older audio preamp from ART. Is there a perceptible quality difference between the different brands of replacement vacuum tubes? Go ahead, Courtney. You know, I really don't know because there's so few tube suppliers these days. Uh, you know, you don't have much of a chance to shop around. Um, you know, tubes can get gassy after a while uh, as they sublimate and get older. A bigger problem with older audio preamps that use tubes is the quality of the capacitors and resistors inside that are aging uh, and get leaky. And those are a bigger problem than your tubes uh, differences. Uh, go ahead, Alex. Okay, so I can speak to this because I've actually owned and I've owned and tested 
a lot of ART products. I've sold a lot of them and I know how they build their products. Um, there's two products in their product line that are considerably higher quality than their lower grade stuff. They're, uh, they have the, the ART uh, Pro MPA. It's a dual channel tube preamp and they also have the VLA compressor. Those are really good. Actually, quite a few studios use those as well and they're incredible value for the money. I will say after testing a lot of different tubes, I actually found myself going back to the original factory generic Chinese tubes that they that they have because a lot of these other higher-end tube manufacturers, that what I actually found when I was using it for spoken word was when I would push the preamp hard, that I found that those third-party tubes would actually break up and distort a lot easier, and the factory original tubes were a lot cleaner. And it even says, actually, they write this in their manuals, that they say they actually handpick and test a lot of these tubes that have certain characteristics. So just changing the tubes for the sake of changing the tubes doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get a better experience out of it. I don't want to use, you know, don't let me discourage you. If you want to play around, have some fun, try some tubes. That's always, that's always great, but it doesn't mean you're always going to get better results. Next question. Next one is from Alexander Knight in Port Coquitlam, B.C. What are the odds that we'll see a refreshed ATEM Mini line in 2024? I'd say it's medium to low. Um, you know, without I think that they sold an enormous, they flooded the market went with uh, with what we saw. Um, you know, I think that it's. I don't know how much demand there is for a lot of these at the moment. Um, I think that we have to always watch the economy. Of course, the person that was made popular by the um, the big short, uh, I can't think of his name right now, doctor or something or other, uh, is shorting the market right now <laughs> so, so with everything. Like he's put everything into it. You know, he's notorious for being a little early, but um, if the market goes down, then virtual events go up. Where, you know, what we do as a business is counter-cyclical. So suddenly everyone's going to try to do more for less. And so, um, so it, it usually pushes this kind of technology forward. So, um, so Zoom and, and many people who produ produce virtual things, you know, usually a downturn will be good for them. Um, and same probably with these switchers. So we'll see, we'll see what next year looks like. But if it actually um, tanks a little bit um, next year, then it probably, you probably see more of these coming out. Um, next question. From Jack Rupel in Breckenridge, Colorado, at about 1.25 and video avalanche becomes visible, triggered by a snowmobile. This is from a YouTube, which he has a link for. Could nerfs be used to better understand and avoid avalanche triggering? I think the problem with nerfs right now is that they're good at re representing something relatively easily, but they're not really good at analyzing things. They're building kind of a field of... Of, uh, of of data there, but I, I don't think that they necessarily would be. Right now, we can't get a lot of data out of them. So I think that maybe somewhere in the future, but probably not immediately. Um, next question. Paul Walhus from Austin, Texas. Meta is preparing to release Code Llama, a free code generating AI model based on the Llama 2 as soon as next week to rival OpenAI's, OpenAI's Codex. He wants us to talk this over. I think it'll be interesting to see how many people jump on the meta solutions. I mean, there's a lot of solutions that don't tie themselves into meta, and and so I'm not sure uh, uh, how 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 this will work. But it'll be interesting to see who who uses it. Next question from Douglas Carmichael. I read an article that mentioned that a return to office can help build understanding of disabled workers' needs and backgrounds amongst an organization. Wouldn't a digital-friendly workplace be more disabled-friendly, especially for the neurodivergent? Yeah, yeah. Like, the idea that a return to office is going to be better for folks that need accessibility is... Uh 
Uh, it's, it's, I think, created by somebody who wants everybody to come back into the office. Go ahead, Laura. Absolutely agree with you, Alex. It's um, when you start doing digital first, not only neurodivergent, but visually impaired, hearing impaired, you give us options to do things. And um, some of some some people know my origin story with this organization, but I was trying to get Zoom to work. But I found that being at home and having the time to really work through it was easier than being in an office where I felt singled out and, you know, so, um, yeah, I definitely think that uh, digital first is better for most all disabilities. Next question. This is from Eric Grace in Sacramento. I have inherited a three-camera PTZ optic system connected via RS-232 to a huddle cam controller. What are some better controllers that will allow remote white balance control and progressive tilt and pan without costing thousands? Go ahead, John. If they have Ethernet on them, they should have web server built into them. That's how I control mine remotely. It works great. Next question. From Adrian Watkins in Wellington, New Zealand. Have any of the panel tried the TZA Stella X3 microphone? Uh, go ahead, Alex. I have not, but now I'm intrigued, and now I feel like I need to open up my wallet. I'm just looking at the list of components here. So it does look like they made quite a bit of uh, improvements here. In, like They've sourced some expensive um, German capacitors here. For what we do here for spoken word thing, I think the Stellar X2 is such an incredible value for money. Uh, and based on the photo that I'm looking at here, the one thing that gives me pause about it for using it on camera is that it looks like it's quite a bit larger, and that Shock mount, shock mount is very similar to the one that you would get on a Neumann U87. So physically, I think having that kind of larger microphone in frame would not look as nice. And that's something that I care about. But I'm sure the microphone's going to sound good. So I may have to try it. Next question. From Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Did anyone watch the production of the Alabama Ham Fest on YouTube or in After Hours with the booth walkaround? How were the production values? Good, Paul. Yeah, it was great. They had uh, a guy walking around with the camera and uh, swap fest, ham swap fest kind of died out with COVID. Now they're coming back and it's a great experience. You, there's a growing community of ham radio operators on After Hours and Office Hours. And uh, this was a great experience. And you can find gear, not just ham gear, but you can find audio uh, video gear at the Swap Fest. I think I'm going to go to a couple of Swap Fests and take some uh, mobile camera gear and, mm -hmm. and uh, stream it out. Sounds great. Good. Great experience. Next question. Next question. James Foslin in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Using Google Canada, cap, using Google Calendar to view credit, view crew schedules. Is there a good way to automate scheduling? Thinking of adding travel times based on location information. Uh, go ahead, Paul. Yeah, there's a pretty good selection of add-ons to uh, Google Calendar. You know, um, apps that you can add to it that m may handle this. Yeah, the, I, I will say that um, we tried a lot of this of putting them in, into calendars and we went back to uh, 
Google Sheets. <laughs> just just putting everything in sheets of where people are and what they're doing and what their itineraries are. Um, and we found that trying to manage any kind of sizable crew and putting that all into calendars turned out to be just a really pretty big disaster for us. And, and maybe it's gotten better, but it was something that just we spent more time more people got the wrong things more often that it just we just we couldn't find a service that would be reliable enough and then you people are like suddenly rushing to the airport because the what we we, we found it better just to put it in a document that was easier to manage uh next question gordon lake from los angeles california a 13-foot terrace jib with a dji rs3 pro gimbal cost about sixteen hundred dollars are jibs cheap enough to add to a kit, or should you just hire operators with higher-end jibs? Uh, we've had inexpensive jibs in the past. Um, I'm just taking a look at this one here that you have. Um, so the uh, this is, a, I guess, a mini jib with the... I can't... I don't quite understand how the RS3 can be sold with the jib. Now, the, the problem here is that the jib doesn't come with a tripod. So the reason that it's so inexpensive is because it doesn't have any legs. Um, and the interface between the legs and the <laughs> and the tripod and the and the jib is important. And so just throwing the, the, these cheap jibs that you throw right on top of a tripod is, I will tell you, I feel like they're kind of worthless. I mean, some people like to use them. They're janky, you know, and they just, and they're, you know, it's so get a jib that has legs and preferably legs with wheels <laughs> so you can move it around. There's a lot of value to that. Um, and so I wouldn't buy a jib without a, without legs that are built for it. You know, like it's, it's a, you know, it, it you can get, it's about twice as much as this. So $2,500 to $3,500. We used to have one called an easy jib that we used all the time. Like we bought that thing and it was used all the time, not just for moves and not just for anything else, but just getting the camera where we need it quickly. Um, and so, um, so I think that it was, it was really valuable. We didn't even have a, uh, we didn't even have any kind of motorized head on it. It was just literally like a raw head. It would just stay, it would level because of the way it was built. It would, it would keep the camera level as we move up and down. But what we really did for it is just used it to get it into places that we wanted to get into. And it was a great jib to use for that, but I would not buy this one because it doesn't have any legs. <laughs> Next question. From James Haldane in Vancouver, Canada, has anyone ordered a Yamaha DM3 yet? If so, how do you like it? Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, I've had a few of these uh, come through uh, the store, and I really like them. I think for the price, for what they offer, especially with the Dante version, I think they are they have a really cool interface. They're very, very easy to operate and offer a lot of features, and it's and it's a, in a very tiny, compact frame. So I think for the market that Yamaha is really going after, I think for small corporate stuff, for uh, bands that just want a small portable mixer that they can take with a lot of I.O., that's very easy to operate. I think they did a really good job. It does not have auto mix. So however, I don't think that's a deal breaker for I think the people that they are going after. But it's very interesting at the price point that they're marketing this at they for a little more you can get a Yamaha TF1 mixer with auto mix. So if you are looking for something with auto mix, I'd say stick with the TF series of mixers. But otherwise, I think for a small mixer, it's, it's really great. Next question. From James Fosling in Minneapolis, Minnesota, would you buy a used high-end microphone? Go on, Alex. Yes, <laughs> especially <laughs> if it's a good deal. And I have done that, and I will continue to do that. Uh, in fact, actually, a uh, few months back, and I, I've 
used it in the past on office hours. I bought a AKG C4114 ULS, the ultra linear one, which they do not make anymore. I think it's about, that's almost 20 years old now. And uh, it was in phenomenal condition. I believe it only had one owner and I I had somebody trade it in at work and I snatched it up really quick. (laughs) Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, a lot of high-end microphones that are being bought and sold are no longer being made. There might be a classic uh, tube mic or something else. But one thing that I get a kick out of looking at is I have a U87, which I've had for ages, and I take very, very good care of it. Um, I've seen many, many of them uh, displayed in the studio for a band or on an album cover. And you look at them, and they've got dents all over them where they've been misused. So that's a bad sign if you're going to buy a high-end mic. If you see dents on it, avoid it. Good, Courtney. Yeah, I wouldn't buy a ribbon mic, but uh, condenser microphones, I think, can last a long time, and a lot of them can outlive their owners. So you'll find a lot of them at at estate sales sometimes. Okay, Mitch, don't worry. Uh, 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 So listen to it first. That's the key to make sure that, uh, you know, it hasn't been abused, as Mitch says, or it doesn't have a broken diaphragm or uh, some other type of electronic problem. And make sure that uh, it interfaces, make sure you have all the parts for it, especially if you're buying some of these uh, antique microphones from the 50s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. Uh, some of them require high voltage power supplies, which you make sure you we have that because if go. you buy the okay, mic we without the power supply. You guys got to pay attention to time. Oh, sorry. So oh. I was, when, I, when I'm going like this, it means everyone's got to speed up. I'm not going crazy. I'm just saying we got to move. So, um, so uh, we're now jumping into the second hour. <laughs> And I'm not the one that's hosting for the second hour. <laughs> I was ready. I, I, so, I saw it come so, back up to so you. For those watching, we are we have to get to a point where we're st- stopping right at the top of the hour. And so uh, I got a little snug. I'll give you a little inside baseball since it's Saturday. So for the panelists and for everyone watching, uh, we're building a system that ha- cuts the show at 8 o'clock. So we cannot go past 8 o'clock on a, on a, on a question. So And what happened was is that I grabbed that last question. There were two people on uh, with their hands up and then suddenly a bunch of other people with their hands up and it suddenly threw me off on the, on the time system. And we are really trying, we're trying to hammer this even on a Saturday and on a Sunday, we're trying to hammer this first hour, second hour, because we have to build a mechanism on the back end that makes this actually work. So a little inside baseball for all of you, because we only got a couple questions left, but the, um, uh, but you, but for the panelists, one of the things that you're going to see me do a lot more is this. And that means that we got to (laughs) move like, you know, so, so the, uh, and so the, um, but at the top of the hour, the system has to get fed. And so we just, we just have to, we're pretty, things can be flexible up until the t- end of the hour, but we need to pay attention. But if you, if anyone sees me doing this, it means we got to go. And um, anyway, so the, uh, um, we, we need this system to work for a bunch of, a bunch of reasons. We're trying to get ready for some radio play out and, and TV play out and so on and so forth. And so it, we need to be more precise. So anyway, so the, um, anyways, so, so I was trying to get everybody moving to, to do that. We couldn't, I couldn't get it, couldn't get it. We couldn't get, make the landing. So, um, and then, uh, on Saturdays we switched between me and, and, uh, Laura, which didn't happen to, today, which again, we're, Testing a bunch of things um, that make all of this stuff work, um, but for the folks on the back end, that was a fade down and then a fade back up to someone else, not not back to me. So, um, so I'm just going to hand it off this time to uh, uh, to Laura, and we'll let her jump from here. Welcome back. Let's get into the um, second hour. Next question. 
Paul Wallace from Austin, Texas, is asking, in crypto, PayPal launches a stablecoin in the latest crypto payments push. Will this be the breakthrough crypto needs right now? Go ahead, Paul. It is a breakthrough and billions are flowing into these stable coins. They're backed by gold and uh, currency and they're, they're non-volatile. And uh, I wish our, our crypto expert were here right now, but uh, they're, they're, from what I can tell, they're pretty safe. Next question. From Daniel Ferguson in Thousand Oaks, California. Any recommendations for Wi-Fi birding cams to record some of the wide variety of feathered friends visiting our backyard? Go ahead, John. So go to YouTube, search for What's Inside YouTube channel. This guy is a lot of, he's got over a million followers, but he just reviewed that bird feeder slash webcam for birds. And it's got AI built on where it tells you what birds are eating from the bird feeder. It's really cool. Next question. From Douglas Carmichael, Eric Orme, director of live events for Amazon Prime Video, mentioned that we serve more than a billion different devices. How do you deliver a single stream to so many devices? And I don't, I'll just jump in. I, I don't think that, uh, I don't think there are a billion different devices. <laughs> like I think there's a billion, they may be serving it to a billion devices. It might've been a misquote or a miss. Uh, I don't think there's a billion different devices to serve to, but there's probably millions of, of them or hundreds of them that are generally active. And I think that the, um, I think that generally what happens there is that uh, what, what you have to get into when you have lots of different devices is generally you're serving out HLS. And um, in, in that I, HLS, you have a manifest. The manifest describes what's available to the device. There are many, 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 many different um, st stairs that are created for all these different devices. And then those manifests are jumping out. I don't, I haven't heard of billions, but it's often, I know that the last number I heard from a pretty large company was four to 500 different manifests. And so it, they're basically being, um, they're, they're different settings and deliver these different manifests and they go, oh, you're from, you, you have this Android or this iPhone or this whatever. And it delivers a manifest specifically designed for that, for that device um, from a server. So those are dynamically generated manifests that, that are delivered so that they only grab the, the content that they need. So that's really how, how we've had to do this. It's, it's much more complicated than it seems. It's not like we have nine nine different encodes and we provide it to everyone. Um, there's HDR, there's stereo, there's sometimes 5.1 and Atmos, and there's all these other things. And it, you have to know what devices can do what, and then you deliver a customized uh, manifest for every device. Next question. Paul Walhus is asking, Elon Musk claims blocking is going to be deleted as a feature except for DMs without giving any details. In a reply to a user's ex post about block versus mute, read it in The Verge. Go ahead, Paul. Yeah, I read it in The Verge. The Verge. Uh, yeah, block, I guess it's going away except for direct messages. I want to know if Twitter, if you tweet on Twitter, what do you do on X? What do they call that? Post. Anyway. Post. Over to Alex. Yeah, you're just posting. Hey, Alex. Yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, I've barely blocked anybody ever. Um, I think that the problem really is, is that blocking means that someone can't tweet at you. Um, and so I think that you'll end up, I think that the um, a lot of VIPs and A-level stars block a lot of people so that they, it's it's so that they can't, 
you know, even though the star, you might mute it and then you don't see that person anymore, but it means that they're still able to attach their, them onto your fame and throw their replies in and, and grab onto that, those viewers. And so, um, it is a very popular thing to do among people who are pretty well known is to block people who are being, you know, inappropriate most of the time. Um, and sometimes people they just don't like. Um, and so the, um, I, I've blocked maybe four people ever. Like I don't, I mute a lot of people and I mute a lot of words and I mute a lot of other things. I don't really block things that often. Um, and, uh, but, but I think that what it'll probably do is just reduce the number of, it won't, the average person doesn't get affected by this. It's someone who has a million followers or half, half a million followers or something. And people are using that following chip to, to get their word out. And the blocking keeps them from doing that. Taking that away will most likely have a lot of uh, VIPs and so on and so forth just stop tweeting. <laughs> like, you know, like just they'll stop, they'll stop, um, they'll, they'll stop interacting um, with, the, with the platform. So I think it's uh, good if you're trying to build something that would replace Twitter. Not so probably not, not very good for Twitter to, to do that, but we'll, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Next question. From Adrian Watkins in Wellington, New Zealand, any recommendations for a mobile provider with good data throughput and coverage in the Yosemite Tahoe back roads? He's planning a vacation, apparently. Go ahead, Alex. Starlink. <laughs> like once you start getting, once you start getting out of, there's not a lot of cellular. I can tell you in Yosemite, we've used satellite trucks. Um, every time we've gone there, we haven't been able to get enough of enough. They don't want to put up, obviously they want to put towers up in, uh, in uh, Yosemite, in the Tahoe area. In the, but once you get in the back roads, there just isn't a lot there. There's no reason to put the, sour, the cell towers up. And so it goes down to very, very low. Um, so I would, I would strongly re recommend thinking about a, 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 um, uh, a Starlink. Next question. Paul Wallace would like us to comment on this discussion of Zoom's place in the global marketplace of video conferencing systems. And he has a YouTube video link. What does Zoom need to do to keep from being complacent? I go ahead, Paul. Yeah, I thought this was interesting because I was watching uh, Win Windows Weekly and some guy popped in with a question. He said, I was watching Office Hours and I heard this discussion of... Uh, about uh, Zoom's place in the global marketplace. And uh, they've got 55%. They're way in the lead. The question is, are they getting complacent? I, sorry, and I, I forgot to put my hand up. Um, Go ahead, I Alex. I don't think they're getting complacent. I, I think that they sometimes, I think they're taking on actually a lot. And I think that sometimes I think that the, the focus on, I think my concern is mostly the focus on video may not be uh, as, as heavy as it, as it could be. I think that there's a lot of, and I've seen, I feel like I've just seen this movie quite a few times where Apple tried to be Microsoft and Slack tried to be Microsoft and other people try to be Microsoft. And, and, um, and what ends up happening is, is they, they just end up becoming something that their own users don't want. And it's, the challenge really is your own users don't want that and the new and the users that were on the platform that you're trying to pull from uh, aren't going to move. And so you end up in this kind of never, never land. And that's the concern that I always have with Zoom getting into a lot of the Teams features and everything else. You know, I, they, they seem to be building them out. And, and, I, and I, I also am very willing to say that maybe I'm a, an outlier in the sense that some other window opens every time I open Zoom that has a bunch of things that look like Slack and Teams and everything else. And I, and I immediately shut that window. <laughs> I just like, okay, I don't need that. And then I go back to what I was doing. And I think that sometimes taking advantage of, of your, of your vertical um, and really making sure that you keep that lead is really important. There's a, such a huge opportunity for, 
we barely touched what was possible with virtual conferencing and we're, you know, it's slowed to, you know, the development of that has slowed a lot. Um, Zoom's still moving faster than everyone. Well, Zoom is still putting a lot of great features in. And again, I think that if the liminal team wasn't at Zoom, there would be no movement <laughs> like, you know, yeah. in, the, in, in the video area. Um, and, then, and then we'd all be trying to figure out what's next. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I think Microsoft is the biggest competitor there with Teams. And Microsoft has, you know, since they bought Skype and run it um, uh, for the consumer, uh, they moved the technology into Teams. And now they're trying to expand Teams into the consumer market versus the business market where they're, they've reigned supreme with Teams because uh, it integrates with the whole office system and now looking at all the rest of their, their uh, office suites so, uh, and exchange. But uh, now they still run Skype and Skype is still available for the consumer. And so it's kind of bifurcated. And then once they eliminate Skype and force people to move over to Teams, uh, they may capture more of the market in that one platform. Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, I think that... Um Teams is a little bit of a mess. So, I mean, you know, the team from a from a video perspective. So, Microsoft would need a new team, a new team to take over Teams and really do something with it. Um, because I think a lot of people that were doing things there left, um, or were laid off and moved to other things at Microsoft. And so, Microsoft doesn't have a lot of focus. Uh, you know, I think on the on video and Teams. At least that's the impression that a lot of us have. Um, and so, so I think that um, they're kind of happy with where it's at, which is not great. Um, so, uh, so I think that that's the, you know, that's, that's great for Zoom, um, that Microsoft is a little defocused. Um, and so, so I think that, but I do think that there's other, like I was surprised, I was on a meeting, I, you know, I don't see very, I mostly see Zoom. I mean, that's like 90% of my meetings right now, w even with other clients. I mean, I see Teams about once a week, maybe, maybe once every other week. And then I see Meet about every other week. And then I see Zoom. Like, you know, and, and so, um, and so the, um, but I, so I think that there's still, Zoom's got some, but I was pulled into a WebEx meeting. I couldn't believe in how much difference WebEx had, how much ground WebEx had taken in a year. Uh, it was, it was profound. Um, it's not nearly what Zoom is, but they're moving much faster than everybody else right now. Um, I don't know what exactly what they're doing there, but they're, you know, and, but they're still, you know, they, they came from. 20 lengths behind to eight lengths behind. <laughs> they're, they're not like catching up. It's just that they're, but they, but they really closed a lot of distance over one year. Next question. Alexander Knight from Port Coquitlam, BC. How is X's new communities feature going with respect to office hours? Go ahead, Alex. You know, it's an experiment. I don't really know what we'll do with it. It was, you know, it, it was new <laughs> to see what it looked like. I find myself, I still have to build a habit of posting things there. So I'm trying to figure out what to post there and what makes sense to post there instead. I think that the advantage of it that I want to start taking more advantage, I was, is, I'm was. i glad you brought the question up because I've been thinking about it a little bit, is I, uh, um, I think that I... I'm really interested in the idea that I could post lots of geeky stuff there for our community that I don't, I wouldn't necessarily put in my whole feed, you know, like, you know, and be much more frequent about it and stuff like that. So I'm trying to do more of that and I'm still getting used to that it's there and I have to put it in. It's just a new, it's one more thing to post into for me. Um, so, so I'm going to, but, but if you're interested in that, you can, if you go to Twitter, there's an office hours global and you can request access to it. And I give most people access to it unless I recognize their name and think that they're dangerous. Um, and so, uh, or they don't have any followers or they, it looks like a, 
spammy thing. Um, but there's about a hundred people in there. And so we're, we're going to keep on playing with it. Um, we'll probably start putting some announcements in, um, eventually, you know, I, I kind of want to start building up so that if we, I think that eventually, I don't think it's there yet, but I think you can do spaces only to that. So we might do something where we do, we push space, we push conversations into spaces, but only inside of that community. Next question. From Mitchell Hill in Wilmington, Delaware, you have no internet and you have an important Zoom meeting. What do you do? Go uh, ahead, go Samuel. Oh, well, you really should have a backup of some sort. Uh, but if you don't have a backup, then you almost have to go to some place where you have good internet so you can join the Zoom meeting. Go, go ahead, Courtney. Well, if you don't have access to cellular, which would be my fallback, uh, and to put my, uh, basically, uh, put my cell phone into Wi-Fi mode to uh, serve to my computer uh, uh, connection, internet connection. If you don't have that, then you uh, you address a little a letter to them and drop it in the mail, and then you go through your VHS video collection and call through the stuff and use that time creatively. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, it can happen. It happened uh, last night, for example. Uh, a bunch of us were getting together to have a little Zoom chat, and one of our members had no uh, internet in his house. So what do you do? You jump into your Tesla and use the Tesla Zoom app. And uh, it's simply that easy. You just jump in a car and uh, our, our member literally sat in their car the whole time and uh, conducted uh, the Zoom meeting and it went just fine. I find that scary. Next question. From James Foseline in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota. I updated my Apple TV. Is there not a way to have your old logins and setup to migrate? Go ahead, Alex. Alexander. I've, I've never had my logins or any data just disappear on a software update. So it sounds to me, I can only assume that you actually physically bought a new Apple TV and you're having to re-enter all your information there. I'm not sure if there's a migration. I, I know with iPhone to iPhone iOS devices, you can just put them side by side and they'll magically move data over. I don't think there's a way to do that with Apple TV. I, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, maybe that's what you're experiencing. Next question. Daniel Ferguson of Thousand Oaks, California. How do you encourage people to turn their cameras on during Zoom or Teams meetings? I see a noticeable, more congenial difference in meeting tone when they see my facial expressions and reactions. Go ahead, Courtney. Well, you set a company policy and enforce it. You have a moderator that enforces the Zoom call. And we do this with our union meetings. Our union meetings require, if you're going to come in remotely, which is allowed, uh, you have to have your camera on and you have to be on camera, not just have your camera on. You can't be there and absent. Um, and they also require that you be listening on headphones so that no one else can listen in. Uh, and those requirements are enforced by a Zoom meeting moderator. If they see you're off camera, they pull you out of the meeting. So uh, just enforce, enforce, make the rules and enforce them, and that'll keep people on camera and watching. Go ahead, Alex. I, I think that the uh, kind of the, the softer push is that for people who think it's important is to make sure that you look and sound good on Zoom. It gives you an incredible advantage over everybody else. 
So don't don't bother to have them turn their camera on. Everyone's going to listen more to you if you if you are like that. And if a group of you start doing that, and you know, for me, I I don't have I have my Zoom hide everything that any cameras that are off. So I don't even know people exist if they don't turn their camera on. Like if if you like all I see are the windows that are opened. Um, you know that. And so if you're not there, I don't really notice you um, very often. I sometimes open the list for some of our meetings, and and for some meetings you have to understand that some people have a reason to turn it off. But I think when everybody's got, I, I will admit, um, in a normal meeting, not like what we have here in office hours, but in a normal meeting where everyone's got fake backgrounds and, you know, blurred backgrounds and they've got all those edges and everything else, I kind of wish they would just turn it off. You know, like I don't need to look at that. And so uh, so I, I think that, you know, either make it good or turn it off, in my opinion. <laughs> like it's just, I don't need to see all the hoopla, you know, you know, and so I think people need to take it a little bit more seriously. But I do, I will say that... Um, you generally have a huge advantage by having a good setup, you know, in a, in a meeting of having your ideas heard more seriously than everybody else's. And I did. And I say that as someone who years ago, I used to resist being on video meetings all the time. Like, so I'm not like, I believed in this the whole time. I spent years joining by phone. And I, and I will say that I, I look back at that as a huge mistake on my end to have um, to spend, you know, to not be present visually and with good audio. And when I, uh, my ability to move ideas forward changed dramatically when I uh, built up a better system. And that happened years ago, long before COVID. But I, um, but I, I definitely took it more seriously over time. But I spent probably a solid four or five years almost unwilling. And even though my business was to do virtual meetings, <laughs> like for other people, I didn't want to do it. And so, uh, so I, I get the, I get the intention or the, why you don't want to do that. And I like walking around and talking to people. I'm actually think better and I'm more, more conversational when I'm not in, in a zoom meeting. If you get me on a phone call and I'm wandering around and fiddling with things, I'm much more conversational and I'll think through a lot of things with you and I'll talk for hours. Um, on a zoom meeting, oftentimes I'm like, there's a block that I'm willing to talk about it and then I want to move on. So, so I think that it does, it does change that behavior. Next question. Douglas Carmichael is asking, can the shortcuts created by Zoom cuts be triggered from other automation tools like Keyboard Maestro or Better Touch Tool? Go ahead, Courtney. Or no, sorry, Samuel. Yeah, you should be able to uh, to trigger it from other apps uh, because you can put in a, sh a keyboard shortcut. I use uh, a bit focus companion with Victor Listener, and I uh, post uh, the uh, keyboard shortcuts. They often like the F keys with a combination, and it works very well now. Next question. Gordon Lake from Los Angeles, California. If you're buying a used iPad, how far back can you go? I've noticed some apps don't support the older iPads. Go ahead, Courtney. I would not go back more than a couple of years. The biggest problem with uh, an older iPad, a used iPad, is the battery is not real replaceable or not easily replaceable. You can have it replaced. But uh, if it hasn't had a new battery put in it, that would be my biggest worry unless you're going to leave it plugged in uh, to use as a touch interface for something and leave it plugged in all the time. Uh, and also, Apple has uh, the uh, problem of orphaning their older hardware when they come out with a new version of the operating system. So make sure that the software that you need to run will run on it before you buy it. Go ahead, Alexander. 
all good points by Courtney there. I will, yes, you can buy a used older iPad, but I would strongly encourage you to look at Apple's certified refurbished program because at least you get a warranty and you can save yourself some money that way and still get a, a pretty current product with support. Go ahead, Paul. Yeah, you can go to Apple Community and they have a article in there called What's the Oldest iPad That Will Still Work? on the latest operating system, and it lists all that. It's at discussion.apple.com. Next question. Alexander Knight in Port Coquitlam, B.C. I've had conversations with several manufacturers and distributors regarding supply chain versus demand. It seems that many parts problems have subsided. However, demand is astronomical. Thoughts on what's causing this? DJ gear demand is unbelievable. Go ahead, Alexander. Yeah, it's one of the things that I've been, it's so frustrating as someone who rents a lot of PA equipment, Pioneer is usually what who we deal with for that stuff. And CDJ 3000s, I've had them on order f- since last year. It's been about 12 months now. Still haven't got my orders yet. There have been zero in the chain. Like across Canada, there's zero available. And I don't know what's going on, but it just seems like everyone all of a sudden wants to be a DJ. And I'm not sure where this is coming from. And there seems to be no end in sight for these problems. Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, it's oftentimes what we've really found. It's oftentimes one little chip, one little converter, one little whatever that stacks everything up. And so it's not, we had a company that shared one, they they, they shared one transistor with Apple, uh, the Apple iPhone, and couldn't get anything. <laughs> like, you know, couldn't, I mean, literally delayed them by a year because Apple will buy like all of it, you know, for the next two years, you know. And so uh, those are the things that, and a lot of them have to then engineer. A lot of them are still in the process. There's a b- bunch of companies that are still in the process of engineering around it. So they're literally redesigning how they build their hardware so that they don't need the chips that are under high demand or under low supply. Next question. From Douglas Carmichael, what macOS automation tools have you used? I'm using Better Touch Tool and Alfred myself. Go ahead, Samuel. Well, I've used the Apple shortcuts uh, that we use for uh, for the Zoom app. And then I've, I've played a little bit with the uh, keyboard maestro. It seems like a very powerful tool. Uh, so when I get a little bit more time, then I think I'll, I'll work on it more because it seems very interesting. Go ahead, Paul. Yeah, I use uh, Alfred and IFTTT, which stands for if this, then that, and also uh, shortcuts. Next question. Gordon Lake from Los Angeles, California asks, understanding that small flat panel lights are easy to set up for Zoom, but aren't big soft boxes a better look? Go ahead, Alex. In general, yeah. I mean, you generally want to try to get ones. Now, I've used, when I'm on the road, oftentimes I have the little Pavot, the the 6Cs, the Pavotube 6Cs, which aren't particularly large, but they have a little bit of a length to them, and they seem to do a pretty good job at at lighting those up. Um, Throwing them through some kind of diffusion makes a a big difference as well. Um, So, uh, but yeah, larger sources generally is the way you want to go. Um, But remember, like, for instance, I have a frame that is here that is large and then smaller lights behind it. So you can also build something that that could possibly be set up relatively quickly that can give you that diffusion. Go ahead, Courtney. 
One thing to remember, though, is if you're traveling around or using something portable, the the, the umbrella type uh, diffuser, you know, folds pretty flat, but to unfold it and use it in a room, you have to have a pretty high ceiling to get it out of the shot. Because remember, that thing can be about three or four feet deep or, you know, from back of the light to the front of the diffuser. So if you're trying to put it above somebody, uh, you got to have a lot of ceiling room. So take that into account if that's your only light. Just a quick reminder, our producers can submit questions and vote on those questions so that you so that we know what you want to talk us to talk about first. Next question. Next one is from Jack Rupel in Breckenridge, Colorado. Could crypto mining hardware be repurposed for Unreal Engine content and game creation as a more profitable use of this hardware? Go ahead, Alex. I don't know if it's more profitable. <laughs> like, I don't know if it'd be more profitable to use it there than, than, than crypto. Uh, so, I mean, it depends on how far along you are. Um, and a lot of the stuff that was bought uh, for crypto mining is not as new anymore um, as some of the other stuff that's less expensive. So I probably wouldn't re reorganize it now. Next question. From Kyle Hammond in Chicago, Illinois. Speaking of Apple TV, any creative ideas for how to still use first-generation Apple TVs, the ones that won't let you add apps? Go ahead, Alex. If you're talking about truly the first generation, um, you know, other than the apps that might be on, I don't, I didn't, I didn't even know Apple TV had one that didn't have any idea, any, uh, didn't let you put any apps on it. Wow, that's really old. Um, the one thing I would say is if it still, if it allows any kind of airplay, that could be interesting. But, um, but yeah, you may not be able to, <laughs> may, may be able to use it as a hammer at that point if, it, if you can't put anything on it. Now, one thing that I use Apple TVs, my older Apple TVs a lot for is AirPlay, but that's, the, that's not first generation. Um, but you, but AirPlaying to things and just being able to, we, we used to install them under uh, desks for broadcast. And so we have a Apple TV under the desk. So it's really nearby and you can just open up your iPad and, share to that and it gives us an HDMI feed from there without having to hook it up or do anything else. Um, and we found that that to be relatively, um, r relatively powerful. Alex, if the Apple TV was that old if and they aren't still updating it, would it be a security risk just to have it on the internet? Uh, with an Apple TV, I don't really think so. I don't think anyone's doing anything with the Apple TV first generation. So I, I that, think that was kind of what I was curious about. Thank you. Yeah, I wouldn't worry about it too much. Next question. From Douglas Carmichael, for remote workers in most fields, would a microphone in the camera shot have a stigmatizing effect? Without a headset mic, can you get good sound without a mic in the shot? Go ahead, Courtney. I think you can. I, my microphone is not in the shot right now, and it's within about, you know, I can scratch the... I can scratch the microphone windscreen with my pinky so it's less than six inches from my face right now so if you're using an electret condenser it has enough uh, gain to uh, work a little bit further away than um, a uh, you know uh, um, a dynamic mic like the pr40 or the shures but um, and because they require a little more vocal energy to move that diaphragm uh, condensers will get a little a little better but bear in mind they also pick up more Background sounds like mine is right now. Yeah, uh, Courtney, if you, if you listen to the quality of Courtney's, uh, Courtney and I have exactly the same mic, um, and I've chosen to make mine a little bit closer. I still have a lot of fans running as well. I have noise assist running a little bit, um, and uh, so so you can decide whether it should be outside of the outside of the frame or inside of the frame. I personally think Courtney would sound better uh, in his environment with the the mic a little closer to his mouth. And uh, I, 
let me just apologize right now. I have uh, original sound off because there is here. Here, I'll turn it on. You can hear what's going on outside my door right now. It's an acetylene, you know, oxyacetylene torch yeah. cutting steel pipes, so it's gone consistently. So <laughs> I'm trying to filter that out. So my my sound right now sounds a little funky because I've Zoom is is uh, doing a lot of noise suppression to get yeah. rid of that. I still think it would sound better closer. <laughs> Go ahead, Paul. Yeah, I think the Stellar X2s that uh, Alex and Courtney are using are great mics. I've got this Shure MV7. I do not feel stigmatized. Next question. From Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. A new web crawler dramatically expands the amount of data OpenAI's models will train on. But the company says you can opt out to prevent it from visiting your website. Go ahead, John. OpenAI's got to giddy up because Google's Google's got uh, Bard basically integrated into Google now. It's I've got a new version I'm testing in Google Labs right now, and it looks really good. So they've got a... And you could do this with the plugin, so they've got they've got Bing integrated in via plugin for new recent web data, but it's really clunky. It's not as clean as what Google's doing. So yes, they need to do something fast. Go ahead, Paul. Go ahead, Paul. He's been stigmatized. Yeah. Okay, let's go. Let's go to the next question. Next question, yeah. Kyle Hammond in Chicago, Illinois, is asking, how much throw can you be able to get out of the various tube lights? Do they have enough power to get over six feet? Looking for a mobile or temporary light set up for a 10-minute talk. Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, so, yeah, the... Um, uh, you can get a fair bit of it. It depends on the ballast and and how many you put in. We've done we've had eight foot lights that we have you know eight of them very close together. You end up with a really pretty bright light that you can use there. So there's a lot of options there to make that um, to to tie those things together. Um, they don't throw very far, uh, but they are pretty bright in a in a in a field that's you know eight to ten feet away. I wouldn't use you know they're not the kind of thing you use to go from the back of a room to the front of a room. Those are more like Lecos and other things like that. But if you're trying to light something fairly close, they can produce a pretty good light. Courtney? Yeah, because they're tube-based, cylindrical-based, they radiate in all directions, so they don't concentrate, you know, the amount of power that's put into them in a single direction, so you get more more uh, oomph out of a, a light with a reflector or with a, that is directional at, or has a lens on it that focuses the light than you would out of a tube light, uh, because uh, if your tube light has a reflector behind it, like Kinoflows do, uh, then you can recover a lot of that wasted light that would be going back to light the back of the room instead of your subject. Paul? Yeah, I've got a tube light over there. I don't know what happened. Uh, some window popped over Zoom, and I couldn't answer the last question. Can I answer it now, Alex? No, just keep moving oh, forward. Okay. All right, we'll move on. Okay. Next question. From Alexander Knight in Port Coquitlam, BC. Has anyone tried the Godox TL120 tube light? I've been looking for a reasonably priced large tube light that's pretty good quality. Go ahead, Alex. Alex, what are you using it for? Uh, just some fun 
fun projects. I want to do this little um, kind of uh, film this intro video for my client's podcast here. So I need something that's portable that I can run on battery uh, to shoot at night. And how big does it, I don't know, how long is this Godox? I think, it's like, I think it's four feet. It's pretty long. Right. Yeah. I mean, the ones that, the ones that I've used the, the most are that we, you know, Pavotube has the 6C, but they've got, they go up to like six feet long with, and they're battery operated, remote operated. I don't know. I don't know what the price is for the larger ones um, and, and whether they're competitive with Godox or not, but um, they are, I know that the little 6Cs will last about two and a half hours um, on, on a remote. And I've been really looking at the longer ones to put in, to literally put in my kitchen so that I can light it up for cooking stuff where they're just, I'm, I want to replace a lot of the fixtures that I have with those lights so that I can turn them on. It might drive my wife crazy, but I had to figure out how to make the switch work so that it just works the same for her. Before we end, Alex, do you have um, a, a few a preview of next week? Uh, you know, uh, yeah, I do have a preview of next week. Um, yeah, so we the, didn't uh, get it. At, we, we didn't, didn't get, get it at the yeah, hour switch. Middle, so. so that was the that was the hour switch. That's why, that's why I was going like this. Um, <laughs> anyway, so uh, project management is going to be on Monday. Uh, so pro- lessons from architecture and construction. The, the team is putting together some great uh, second hours for that. Uh, so, so uh, I think that Mondays are going to turn out to be really good as this team starts to put put these together. Uh, my old buddy uh, Stu Mashwitz is going to be on on um, on Tuesday. Uh, I used, uh, Stu and I shared an office for about a year and a half at ILM, and he's just going to be talking about his background and uh, he's done a lot. And so he's going to be it's going to be a great interview with Stu. Um, we're going to talk about object based editing with Robert Scoville on uh, on Wednesday. That should be fantastic. Um, and uh, David C Smith uh, with Plate Pros will be joining us on Thursday uh, to talk about what Plate Pros does. They do a lot of the background plates for for uh, shows. Um, NDI Workflows, we've got a great um, a great list of folks that are all going to be part of um, the the um, the NDI Workflows um, discussion on Friday. If you want to know about NDI, this is going to be the place to go. And then, of course, the weekend will be um, more Saturday weekend and then Sunday more introspection. So that's what we have coming up next week. And IBC will be Saturday the 16th. They're going to take over our time spot. And that should be really interesting. I know the team's working really hard on that. Yeah, absolutely. And with that, I would like to thank the panel for being here today. Um, these questions have been much harder. We're much smarter together than we are any one of us um, individually. Uh, thank the producers for all your questions. The show is driven by questions. And finally, thank our crew. Um, without them, it really is a small village that raises up every single day to make this show run. Holidays, weekends, uh, you name it, they're here. Um, the Tlaloc Traversal today was 116,000 miles, 187,000 kilometers. That's more than 922 million bananas. Let's go to After Hours. Bananas for scale. <laughs> we did one, we did one where we had a, we were digging a big hole in the ground. It was a holiday hole for, and, and we just, every once in a while we'd throw a banana in there, like a real banana, we'd throw it in there into the hole and then we'd start a drone over top of it and then slowly pull away. So show nice. you how big, how big the, uh, how big the hole is that we were digging for no reason. It was great. Wow. Yeah. That, that would be cool. Real, the real example of banana for scale. Yeah, exactly, exactly. The hole for no reason. It was it was the hole. I saw that film. Did you see that? (laughs) No.
<laughs> if, I think if you go to YouTube, you'll see pieces of it. It's it's the Holiday Hole. It was a Cards Against Humanity. Um, uh, oh no, it was a Man for All Seasons, not a Hole for No Reasons. Yeah, that was a completely different movie. <laughs> Although slightly connected. Uh, yeah, I'll leave, I'll leave that one alone. 